I'm Deborah Lamb, a voice from the past, CJSW's first ever female announcer from 1972, and Calgary's first ever female DJ. And you're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM. There were refugee and migrant flows, particularly across Germany's eastern border. So this is really where Hitler comes in, because the message that Hitler and the Nazis started to develop with great political success in the late 20s is basically, we're the party that will stop this. We're the party of, if I might put it this way, putting Germany first or making Germany great again. There are historians who tell us Hitler is what happens when you have too much democracy. And there are historians who tell us Hitler's what happens when you don't have enough democracy. That's Benjamin Hett, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Benjamin Hett on how Hitler happened. The post-World War I Weimar Republic in Germany was the height of European civilization. Its scientists and scholars led the world. Its Bauhaus architecture was the rage. Its arts featured such luminaries as Fritz Lang, Bertolt Brecht, Kurt Weill, and Thomas Mann. Yet out of this modern democracy sprang Nazism, German fascism, and one of the most barbaric regimes ever. How did Hitler happen? It is one of the most important questions of history. What happened in Germany has disturbing resonances for our own time. Fascist-like regimes are taking power in many countries. We ignore disturbing signs at our peril, from torchlight parades in Charlottesville with crowds chanting, Jews will not replace us, to a synagogue massacre in Pittsburgh, to the murder of African Americans in a church in Charleston. What can we learn from the past to ensure it doesn't happen again? Our guest today is Benjamin Hett. He's the author of Burning the Reichstag, Crossing Hitler, and the Death of Democracy. He's a professor of history at Hunter College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. I talked with him in his office at Hunter College in New York. The origins of the Nazi Party, you write, the Nationalist Socialist German Workers' Party emerged from the uh, German Workers' Party that was formed in 1919. It was a French party, you write, until the late 1920s when it began to win significant support, first in Protestant rural areas. When Hitler took over as the party's leader in 1920, he added National Socialist uh, to its name. One thing this shows, I think, is the political cleverness of Hitler. Uh, the the DAP, the German Workers' Party, was just another of any number of uh, radical right-wing fringe movements that were springing up in Munich uh, right after the war in 1919. And the DAP would have gone nowhere at all if Hitler, uh, on one occasion when he was working as kind of a political spy for the army, 
hadn't wandered into one of their meetings and been incensed by a speaker who advocated uh, Bavarian secession from Germany, and Hitler rose and poured a torrent of abuse on this man, as only Hitler could. And this impressed the heck out of the other people in the DAP. Uh, the, the man who had founded the DAP, a man named Anton Drexler, heard Hitler speak, and he said, uh, uh, that guy's got a mouth on him, we could use him. And so they tried to sort of draw Hitler into their party to be their speaker, which, of course, they succeeded at. And then about six months later, uh, under Hitler's leadership, they reformulated the party as not the DAP, but the NSDAP, National Socialist German Workers' Party. That National Socialist is interesting because in conventional political terms, certainly at that time, that should have been a total oxymoron. National implying nationalist uh, on the one hand, and socialist, which is... Uh, conventionally thought of as an internationalist ideology. So uh, a national socialism should be an oxymoron. But uh, it was uh, Hitler's cleverness to see how this could be a kind of political marketing pitch, how you could basically present not actually a socialism in Marxist terms, but a kind of um, egalitarianism that was also nationalist, and that that might be a potent electoral uh, appeal, which it took a while to catch on, but that turned out to be right. You write that the Nazis were able to win a significant support first in Protestant rural areas. Why Protestant rural areas? This is an interesting fact about German politics in this era, and I think this is something that's probably not really widely known. As often happens in politics, there was a constituency that could be a natural constituency for the Nazi message, and then there were other constituencies that were not. There were basically three blocks in German political society. The socialist working class block, there was the Catholic block, and then there was a slightly more amorphous group, which we might call the Protestant middle class block. Even when the Nazis started to do really well in electoral appeal after 1928-29, they never made really deep inroads into either the socialist working classes or the Catholic constituency, where they really not only made inroads, but basically took over this segment of the voting public, was with what we would call the Protestant middle-class camp. The reasons for that go-to is what it was the Nazis were really offering. We tend to think of them now as being primarily anti-Semitic and perhaps primarily or secondarily uh, militaristic. But neither of those notions were at the forefront of Nazi campaigning when they started to attract support. Uh, what the Nazis really were uh, in the late 20s and early 30s in terms of the, their messages to voters and in terms of which voters caught that message and responded to it, uh, they were an anti-globalist protest movement. And this goes a long way to explaining why it is that they were able to capture Protestant votes, particularly in rural areas, because this was a time in which across the sort of north and east of Germany, the agricultural heartland, so to speak, that region was being really hit by trends in the global economy at the time, notably uh, a dramatic drop in world grain prices, so that it was becoming very difficult to make a living farming, and rural areas were really hit by this and were experiencing a lot of poverty, which led to a, a lot of protest and a lot of anger at the Democratic Republic, which people thought was responsible for this situation, and a lot of anger at broader forces in the global economy and trade and so on, which seemed to be uh, bringing this on. And, and the Nazis really positioned themselves as nationalists and against global trade, and they certainly positioned themselves as burningly hostile to the Democratic Republic. 
And it's fascinating that we see these messages really starting to resonate in these Protestant rural areas where even before the Nazis uh, achieved a real breakthrough in, in a national election, which was 1930, but already in 1928, 1929, they're starting to do a lot better in state elections by capturing this rural Protestant vote. And you write that uh, religious belief was a huge component of uh, rural identity. For German Protestants, the male-centered family was the core of the social order. Uh, And then you add that the Weimar Republic concentrated in one package everything Protestants didn't like. There's, I think, a sort of interesting parallel here to things that we're all familiar with. Uh, This is one way in which Weimar Germany looks quite familiar. There was a kind of culture war with with a strong religious component. A lot of a lot of Protestants, particularly Protestants in rural areas, strongly disliked uh, several things which seemed to be characteristic of the new era of the 1920s. They disliked the life of big cities. They disliked all of the sort of cultural things that seemed to go with that. Sexual experimentation, changes in gender roles, a sort of drift away from the church. They disliked the political prominence of the urban working classes manifested in social democratic influence in the New Republic. And also they tended to see it as too Jewish because they tended to equate, in a sort of general way, all of these modern trends uh, to you know political democracy, to individual rights, and so on. A lot of modern art of the time, they tended to think, well, this is all actually really Jewish. So they thought, you know, Weimar is too Jewish, it's too Catholic, it's too urban, it's too Berlin because all of these modern things were very much uh, centered in Berlin. And here, too, the Nazis were able to really play to that and say, you know, we're the party that's against all this. Here is where Nazi anti-Semitism, a little bit in a dog whistle form, played a role. They positioned themselves as against all the sort of modern uh, artistic experimentation, gender experimentation, and so on, that seemed to be characteristic of Berlin in that area, in that era, and that, too, tended to consolidate their support in exactly those groups where they were doing well. Anyway, the sort of Protestant rural and Protestant middle class constituency. And in terms of the uh, Weimar Republic, what is its uh, structure politically? Yeah, so the Weimar Republic is the sort of informal name we give to the state um, that gets formed out of that revolution that comes at the end of World War I, where basically the Social Democrats take over. And then early in 1919, the Social Democrats had a very clear idea of what they wanted to do. They wanted to have national elections for a constituent assembly that would draft a new constitution. They had these elections in January. The Social Democrats won them in the sense that they got the biggest vote share. They didn't get a majority on their own, but with particularly two other Democratic parties, the Catholic Center and the left liberal German Democrats, these three together had a very big majority. So they created this highly democratic political system, this new constitution. And the, con- the new constitution came into effect in August 1919. It also had built into it some things which would turn out to be problematic, which the framers didn't foresee. These really revolve around the power of the presidency. So the office of the presidency was separate from the parliament, or the Reichstag. So the president was separately elected by the whole people for a different term, The parliamentary term was four years. The presidential term was seven years. And very faithfully, the president was equipped with emergency powers under Article 48 of the Constitution, probably the most famous part of this Constitution, so that in an emergency, the president could do by decree pretty much anything he wanted. 
This created the possibility that the president might be able to function as a dictator issuing these decrees. Now, the framers didn't think this was a problem because it didn't really occur to them uh, that uh, an opponent of democracy might get elected to the presidency of a democracy. I think you can't blame them for maybe not thinking that that was a, a possibility for that not having occurred to them. But in fact, that's pretty much precisely what happened in 1925 when the World War I commander, uh, Field Marshal Paul von Hindenburg, in a real squeaker of an election, got elected to the presidency. And that then created the condition where you have a man who really is someone who doesn't like the democratic system occupying the very powerful office of the presidency and with access to these emergency powers. That creates one of the ground conditions, which then in a few years' time makes it possible for the democracy to really go down the drain. Talk about uh, the rise of Hitler, the failed push in Munich in, in 1923, and what class of people, if one could generalize, uh, did the Nazi movement uh, attract? Uh, so, uh, yeah, at the, at the beginning, Hitler was a very, very unlikely person to um, follow a successful path in German politics. German politicians generally, and this is true even of people from the working class parties like the Social Democrats, they tended to be well-educated, politically thoughtful, uh, well-read. Hitler was very much a horse of a different color. Uh, he had fought in the German army in World War One, but he had very little going for him. He had no family name, no money, you know, very little formal education behind him. What he did have, as it turned out, uh, as as we know, is a remarkable talent as a public speaker. He also had some slightly less visible talents. Uh, he had a remarkable ability to perceive what people thought and felt and wanted to hear, both on an individual basis and when dealing with crowds. Uh, he was very, very politically cunning, and he had very strong nerves. He was able to sort of wait for a moment uh, to strike when people around him often were saying, we've got to do something now, and he would have this sort of gambler's nerve to hold out. Uh, in terms of who he, whom he started to appeal to, in the earlier days from the end of World War One until his famous beer hall putsch or coup attempt in 1923, he was really a regional phenomenon. He was active in and around Munich. He started to attract a Bavarian following, largely made up of um, people who had been dislocated by the war, really. It was a following of, of uh, war veterans who couldn't settle down to peacetime, who had a sort of urge to political nationalism, which the war had probably fostered, and a hatred of the uh, Marxist left and were happy to be in a situation where they could break some left-wing skulls. Um, and then generally speaking, uh, those being very rough economic years in Germany, uh, Hitler attracted a following of people who were being hurt by the post-war economic crises uh, and who in various ways either yearned for a return to the good old days or yearned for a return or a, a move towards some better future, but it's not the present. In, in social class terms, probably his early following was more mixed than it would become later. Uh, uh, it may have been sort of centered in the kind of lower middle class uh, craftsman, tradesman milieu. But there were a lot of, there, there were some sort of prominent wealthy business people around Munich who were attracted to him. Uh, the soldiers 
who were disaffected war veterans often came from very mixed backgrounds. It was later on that the Nazi following sort of crystallized around Protestant, rural, middle class, and to some extent upper middle class. Uh, that would have been less evident in Bavaria in the early days. And when and why does Hitler tap into um, anti-Jewish anti-Semitism, which he didn't invent but had been, you know, rooted in in uh, German culture, parts of German culture? Before World War One, anti-Semitism on the German right had become a kind of cultural code. It almost had nothing to do with with any real Jewish people. It was. It was a sort of glue that held together a package of things which people on the right tended to believe, that package including certainly nationalism, uh, militarism, a kind of hyper-masculinity, and, and a corresponding uh, kind of contempt for women and contempt for feminism. Uh, a sort of general dislike of, of modernity and what it meant in terms of urbanization and industrialization and new forms of business like department stores, for instance. All of this package could sort of get tied in a knot and, and reference to Jews and to anti-Semitism could be kind of the shorthand that could in a way convey this whole package. So that's where things were when Hitler sort of picks things up in 1919. Now Hitler uh, certainly believed very strongly in a kind of uh, not religiously based but really as he thought racially based idea of anti-Semitism. He, uh, he believed that Jews were a definable racial group and that that definition as such had just about nothing to do with religious uh, affiliation in any way. And this is the idea he starts to talk about in 1919. What he does and what a lot of people on the right in that time did was he would rhetorically link Jews uh, both to the uh, political democracy of Weimar, uh, which, of course, people on the right hated, and he would also certainly link Jews to uh, one of the other major political factors of the time, which was the emerging uh, communist regime in the Soviet Union. And the idea grew up that, well, Jews are behind that. Jews are behind, you know, the Bolshevik regime in Russia is basically a Jewish regime, just as Hitler would argue to a great degree the democracy of Germany was a Jewish system. And then the other element of this... Uh, something that became very characteristic on the right in those days is that Hitler also linked international finance to Jews. So you have this situation where uh, anti-Semitic discourse is being used to link global finance and the communism of the Soviet Union, all tied together as being supposedly two faces of the world Jewish conspiracy. Now this is something Hitler certainly talked about in the earlier years in Munich, 1919 to 1923. What is interesting, and I think is important to understand, is that after the failure of the Beer Hall Putsch in 1923, and the Nazis sort of go into a trough for a while, when they start to reemerge from that trough around 1928, Hitler's talking about Jews, and he's sort of using anti-Semitic tropes less and less. And he uses them less and less, really the closer the Nazis get to power. So they start to do really well in national elections after 1930. He's really not talking about Jews much, except in a kind of dog whistle way. I mean, if you look at his speeches, he would say things like, you know, he would talk about international finance spiders, for instance. And his audience would know what he meant, but he wasn't saying it very explicitly. He talked, uh, as he rose towards power, he talked a lot about communism and socialism. And, and he portrayed his party as the most determined uh, enemy of Marxism. And he talked a lot about the global economy. 
and these were the vote-getting things. Hitler understood that anti-Semitism, in U.S. terms, we would say, he understood it was a base issue for his sort of most dedicated followers, but it was not an issue that was going to get him, you know, uh, big numbers of votes out there in the sort of broad middle classes that he wanted to attract. People expressed uh, surprise at the um, trajectory the the Nazi movement uh, took, but uh, had they read Mein Kampf, which was uh, uh, Hitler's book, My Struggle, uh, he lays out pretty clearly uh, what his intentions were. So why this, why this surprise? I think there are probably a few reasons for that. I don't think we know exactly... I mean, it would be hard to get data on how many people read Mein Kampf in the 1920s or early 30s. I and mean, we have data on the sales, which really tailed off after the middle of the 1920s. But, of course, lots of people probably bought the thing and put it on their shelves and ignored it. It is, a, 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 along with being, a, of course, a deeply offensive book, it is an incredibly boring book. I mean, it's not a good read. So it would be hard to imagine too many people plowing through all of those turgid pages. In any case, even if you did read it, and of course you're absolutely right that Hitler makes very clear in Mein Kampf, uh, you know, it's on every page basically, his his toxic hatred of Jews. And he makes very clear what his long-term scenario for Germany is. He makes very clear that he thinks Germany needs to rearm and launch a war to conquer Lebensraum or territory in Eastern Europe and basically Poland and the Soviet Union. So these are the things he wanted to do. And of course, these are the things he did once he could. Uh, but I think you need to remember that this was a politician's autobiography. Uh, and, you know, this is a genre we're very familiar with. And if you believe everything that's in a politician's autobiography, well, as we like to say in New York, I've got a bridge for you. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and of course, there's also the issue, and some people did say this, that by the time Hitler is sort of knocking on the doors of power in the early 1930s, it's almost 10 years since the Beer Hall Putsch, and uh, almost that since the publication of Mein Kampf. And so a reasonable person could say, well, okay, you know, that book, that was Hitler, the sort of Beer Hall radical, but now he's Hitler, the major party leader, and, and perhaps, you know, about to be Reich Chancellor. Power always makes radicals calm down. This is a very common political experience. So I think even for people who were aware of what he had said in Mein Kampf, it just didn't seem very important. And, you know, with hindsight, that obviously looks uh, bad. Uh, but I think it's easy to understand how that could happen in the moment. We, I'm sure, do the same thing every day. Uh, perhaps the most uh, cogent and well-written chapter in Mein Kampf is the one on propaganda. Uh, propaganda was, of course, central uh, to the Nazi movement. Yeah, that's right. Uh, a, a number of people commented on the time that uh, uh, that you, when Hitler got to propaganda, you could see, as one um, uh, sophisticated political commentator put it, you could see a man who really knows what he's talking about here. And it's true. I mean, Hitler had a, certainly a, a cynical and unappealing, but nonetheless rather shrewd uh, understanding of how politics works on some level. So, for instance, um, there's the famous passage in Mein Kampf where he talks about lying. And he he raises this in the context of a critique uh, of something he thinks Jews do, but it's clear from how he writes it. What he's saying is telling a big lie in politics can be very effective, much more effective than telling a little lie, because what he says is every human being tells little lies all the time. We're familiar with that. People will recognize it right away if a politician does it, and they'll kind of write him off. 
But if you tell a big lie, most people don't tell whoppers all the time. So if you tell a big lie, people will think that must be right. Even if the lie should then be debunked, it will leave a residue. Hitler also attracts someone by the name of Joseph Goebbels, who becomes later Minister of Popular Enlightenment and Propaganda. Uh, it was Goebbels, you write, who thought carefully about how to persuade people. Simple messages endlessly repeated. Goebbels was sort of the perfect complement to Hitler. I often think Goebbels is one of the most interesting of the main Nazis, precisely because he was probably the most intelligent. This is a guy with a PhD in literature, a man of actually quite sophisticated cultural taste. And what I find really fascinating about Goebbels, and it's really, really, really unusual in human beings, is that on the one hand, he was an absolute political fanatic. No question. He was, a you know, as they used to say in Germany, 110% Nazi. He worshipped Hitler. He was absolutely with the program. He was a ferocious anti-Semite. He's an absolutely hardcore Nazi. And yet, and this is the thing that's remarkable, because of his flexible intelligence, he could also kind of separate himself from that, and he could imagine how Nazism looked to somebody who was an anti-Nazi. And he could really put himself in that way of thinking, which meant that he could then uh, think very effectively about how to pitch that person, basically, about what kind of message Nazis could make that might appeal to people who weren't Nazis. He had the mental flexibility to do this. That's what I think is super unusual. I mean, most of us, you know, whatever political views we hold, we, we sort of can't imagine thinking from the other side, but Goebbels really could. And this is what made him, I think, so good at his job, because he was an extremely good architect of Nazi propaganda. There are, there are a number of people who say that, you know, Hitler might not have been possible as a major political phenomenon without Goebbels to do uh, a fair bit of his thinking for him. And uh, talk about the nature of uh, Nazi propaganda. And you, talk, uh, you write about the cult of irrationality that drove their followers, the contempt for, indeed, the revolution against Enlightenment standards of rationality. Yeah, what the Nazis did very successfully is really change the terms in which politics was spoken about. They introduced a much more bullying violent tone, I mean, not just in literal violence, but in, in language, in, in how they spoke and how they depicted things. Um, there was a real change in discourse. Um, they would talk much more scathingly, much more hatefully about their opponents than was typical. They would use violence all the time. They kind of normalized this extremely aggressive, you know, rapid deterioration, basically, in the nature of public discourse. And people at the time were very aware of this, that they were doing this. An element of this certainly was their utter contempt for facts, basically, if, if at least if the facts were inconvenient, and their cleverness at playing on emotional themes uh, in ways that might resonate politically but weren't things you could sort of necessarily demonstrate logically. But, you know, what it may have captured is a sort of willingness to do something that was going to be better without really being able to articulate what that thing was. I mean, it goes very well with the sort of common Nazi slogan in the title of the famous film, Triumph of the Will. If you just will something, then it can happen, no matter how you know unfriendly the actual factual reality might be. Which, of course, was a Nazi attitude pretty much through to the end, when you know Hitler's in the bunker, and Berlin's in ruins, and his army has basically all been killed. But he's at the map table talking about moving divisions here and there that don't exist. I mean, this sort of contempt for reality was a running theme 
all the way through. And one might say, given contemporary politics in the United States, that there is a kind of contempt for science, for the facts, for truth. It seems to be uh, movable facts and movable truths. Alternative facts, yeah. It's certainly something that worries me a good deal about our time and our political culture, that there seems to be this increasing anti-intellectualism, but even more than anti-intellectualism, or in addition to it, as you said, this kind of contempt for anything that's actually verifiable evidence, that's actually the reality of what's happening around us. Instead, uh, we seem to want to retreat into sort of convenient, nice fables that might be comforting and pleasant, but are not the reality. You're listening to Benjamin Hett on How Hitler Happened. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can order copies of this program and his book, Death of Democracy, by calling... 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. So one of the main ideas that the Nazis pitched was that they would create a German national community. They had a very sort of powerful word for it in German, a Volksgemeinschaft, a national community. And that really played on what they called the ideas of August 1914, the sense of the nation coming together in the face of, of threats. That's what the Nazis promised, and they promised to overcome what they said was the division and the treason of the defeat and the revolution of November 1918. So that, that dichotomy is always really at the heart of what the Nazis are talking about. And following the end of the war, uh, a myth arises, the so-called the stab in the back. Explain what that is. Sure. I would call this actually one of the very few uh, really successful conspiracies, you know, or conspiracy stories in world history. This is one that actually was a conspiracy, and it, and it actually worked. Um, so what had happened is the, the military leadership of Germany, particularly the supreme commander of the army, Field Marshal Paul von Hindenburg, and his uh, his deputy, uh, General Erich Ludendorff, they had clearly recognized by August 1918 that Germany was militarily defeated or was on the verge, at any rate, of being militarily defeated. And as soon as they made this recognition, uh, they told the civilian government, they told Kaiser Wilhelm, uh, that uh, Germany is going to lose and the only rational thing to do is negotiate a way out and arrange an armistice uh, with the Western Allies. So they understood the military defeat perfectly. Well, uh, if you sort of zoom forward into the spring of 1919, people who were sort of in their orbit uh, started writing things and publicizing the idea that the German army had actually been undefeated, and there was this idea um, that the army had been stabbed in the back by the revolution that had been carried out on the home front. And then Hindenburg and, and Ludendorff took this point up themselves. Uh, for instance, they were called before a uh, Reichstag inquiry to testify about the war, and they started putting out this story that the army had been undefeated, it had been betrayed by politicians at home. And then uh, Hindenburg put this in his war memoirs. Ludendorff wrote something very similar in a number of books in the 1920s and 30s. So they really launched this idea into circulation, and it really kind of caught on. I think it's probably safe to say that after a few years, probably a majority of Germans believe this that, in fact, their army had been undefeated. Uh, what made it a little easier for Germans to believe this, I think, is that uh, very unlike World War II, 
when World War I ended, the German army was still on foreign ground everywhere. They were holding positions in France and Belgium in the west. They were occupying huge chunks of the former Russian Empire in the east. Uh, so the war had not literally come home to Germans. There wasn't air bombing in World War I like there was in World War II. And the censorship of news coverage had kept bad military news from the German home front. So German civilians basically could be expected to have just about no idea that they were actually losing when in fact they were. So that made it easier. Nonetheless, it was really Hindenburg and Ludendorff who circulated this idea that they knew to be false, and it caught on. Without drawing analogies too tightly, uh, one could say there were elements in the United States who believed the same thing about the Vietnam War, that uh, cowardly uh, civilian leaders refused to prosecute the war vigorously and sold out the army. That's exactly right. I mean, I certainly remember, I grew up in the 80s, and I remember a sort of endless cycle of, of movies in the 1980s that unabashedly put this idea forward, that, you know, it's the the, the army could have won, or, uh, whoever, you know, the Marines, whoever, fighting the, the army, they, the military could have won, and, you know, cowardly politicians betrayed it. There's actually, there's, interestingly, there's a kind of minor British version of this, um, in, in 1940, immediately after the defeat of France in 1940, uh, some British left-wing journalists put out a pamphlet called Guilty Men, which was a denunciation of uh, British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain and some of the other important politicians in his orbit who had spent years appeasing Hitler's Germany. Uh, and, and in the wake of the defeat of France, there was this same kind of thing. They, they were now being presented, they didn't use the word, but they were being presented in this kind of stab-in-the-back way of having betrayed Britain uh, and thus led to this terrible situation where Britain was standing alone against Hitler. So it's a kind of, you might say it's a kind of reflex to a lost war. that You're, you're probably going to see this kind of thing uh, happening. And it's just unfortunate that the German version was so particularly virulent. Now, going back to the Weimar uh, Republic, it's hit by uh, hyperinflation, the global depression kicked in around uh, 1929, 40% unemployment uh, in Germany. What answers did uh, Hitler and the Nazis provide to the German people in terms of solving the economic crisis? Yeah, so this is one of the things that I think is really, really particularly important about this era. Germany in the 1920s really was a kind of football for global economic forces that Germans couldn't control. Uh, we've talked a little bit about um, trade and agricultural commodities. That was one aspect of it. But there were a lot of others. Around the um, reparations payments of the peace treaty, as they got renegotiated time and again in, uh, in 1921 and in 1924 and in 1929 and in 1931 and finally abolished in 1932. Uh, in all these renegotiations, there sort of grew up this undergrowth of other financial arrangements. And there was, there was another side to this, too. There were refugee and migrant flows, particularly across Germany's eastern border, uh, largely resulting from the Russian Revolution uh, and other political turbulence east of Germany. And because of its relatively low military manpower, Germany couldn't really control that border, uh, so they couldn't stop the migrants coming in. And that became a very politically emotional issue, which was also tied into this sort of general theme of the world doing things to Germany that Germans couldn't control. So this is really where Hitler comes in, because the message that Hitler and the Nazis started to develop with great political success in the late 20s is basically, we're the party that will stop this. We're the party of 
if I might put it this way, putting Germany first or making Germany great again. You know, they they positioned themselves as the party that would cut Germany off from the global economy. They were very much advocates, both of a kind of anti-capitalism uh, and of what in economics you call autarky, of, of cutting a country off from global trade, from international finance, making it self-sufficient just depending on its own resources. They advocated this as very much an antidote to all of the problems that plagued Germany. Of course, they were uh, the Nazis were particularly keen on border protection, and in fact, they used uh, their own stormtrooper detachments often as kind of border patrols on the Polish-German border. Um, so in all of these ways, they are positioning themselves as the real voice of of a German nationalism in opposition to everything that's happening uh, globally. And this is what really starts to resonate in the late 20s, and then all the more so after the Great Depression really kicks in in 29, and as you mentioned, uh, by 1932, the unemployment rate is up to 40 percent by 1932. So, the depth of the economic crisis is really profound, and the Nazis are able to position themselves as the party that really has the answers to that. Trace the the growth of the Nazi movement uh, at the polls. Uh, it was very humble in the early stages, single digits. I believe at one point the maximum vote that the Nazis got was 43 percent. Yeah, the the 43 percent was in a, a not uh, fully free election. The eye-catching thing that happens in the national Reichstag elections of 1928, uh, the Nazis got 2.6 percent of the vote. Even in the Weimar Republic with its big array of parties, 2.6 percent means you're nowhere. Uh, so at that point, they're nowhere. 1928 is kind of the, the high watermark of Weimar, actually. That's when the republic's doing pretty well. The democracy has actually consolidated. Uh, that 1928 election was won by the center-left Social Democrats, who were the real bearers of the republic. The economy was still relatively good in 1928. But then, from 1928 to 1930, there's a huge change. In the Reichstag elections of September 1930, the Nazi vote shoots way up to 18.1%. Never in the history of German elections, um, there had never been such a huge jump in one party's vote from one election to the next. So um, pretty much literally overnight, in September 1930, uh, the Nazis have gone from fringe to major player because that election outcome, they're 18.1%, that makes them uh, the second biggest party in the Reichstag then after the Social Democrats. So they've now become a major factor and Hitler's a major player. Um, two years later, uh, uh, 1932 was a year of elections. There was just this uh, sort of endless procession of elections through the year. There was a presidential election in two rounds where eventually Hindenburg was re-elected over Hitler, but it was a fairly tough fight. Uh, and there Hitler ended up with about 36% of the vote uh, in the second round of the presidential election. So you can see from the uh, Reichstag parliamentary election of 1930, with 18, they've kind of doubled to Hitler's vote share in the presidential election. That summer, there are parliamentary elections again where the Nazi uh, parliamentary share goes up to 37%. And that is their best outcome in a fully free election. And also important to note here, I think, that's very near the size within the German electorate of that Protestant middle class group that we talked about. So what's happened by July 1932 is basically the Nazis have taken over that sort of Protestant end of the spectrum, which basically means they have crushed 
the traditional conservative and liberal parties that used to occupy that space, and they have taken over that space. But they haven't gotten very far with the Catholic and the socialist or communist vote. That pretty much holds up. After Hitler was named chancellor in January 1933, he uh, insists that elections be called again because he's sure with the benefits of incumbency he can win them. And in a not very free election where the opposition press is often being shut down or uh, political rallies are being broken up by the police and so on and the Nazis can control access to the radio and they use it a lot, this kind of thing, there the Nazis get 43%, which if you consider all of the advantages they had and the disadvantages their opponents had, it's actually not a great score for the Nazis. Their coalition partners, the German nationals, got 8%, so that gave them a slim majority. But it wasn't the outcome Hitler was hoping for. Hindenburg appoints Hitler chancellor on January 30th, 1933. Why did he do that? That's a great question, and it's a really important one. It kind of speaks to a broader issue, uh, which I think is a fascinating process. It's the process by which, from 1930 on, Hitler's movement, this increasingly mass movement, which is really a kind of expression of anger against the global situation as it hits Germany, that kind of meets with something else. That meets with elite interest, a kind of mainstream establishment conservative German figures, particularly in the army, uh, and a lot of Hindenburg's advisors who are army people around him, and also in big business. These two forces are sort of dancing around each other, both sort of looking for a way to use each other, both kind of needing each other, but also not always agreeing on everything. And the problem that elite conservatives have in the early 30s is how to figure out a way to take advantage of the popular support that Hitler has, which could enable them to see through a lot of their agenda, which is to limit the democracy of Weimar and particularly to uh, build up the armed forces and to cut back on the Weimar welfare state and uh, regulation of business. So the elite want that. They think they might be able to use the Nazis for it. So long as they don't have to cede any control to Hitler because they don't really like or respect Hitler much and they think his movement is kind of crazy, but it might be useful. So they're dancing around each other for several years. And the outcome of this finally comes in January 33 when there's sort of a deadlock because, you know, it's the Nazi and the communist vote strength that has been rising steadily. But the, the Reichstag uh, is plagued by what's sometimes called a, a negative majority. Uh, and that is that by that time, the Nazis and the communists between them have a majority of the Reichstag, but they're never going to work together. And that basically means the Reichstag is paralyzed. So in that situation, to have any sort of semblance of government, everyone is trying to figure out how you can create a stable administration with adequate parliamentary backing, uh, you know, without having civil war or without having a military coup. And eventually some of Hindenburg's advisors, notably the former Chancellor Franz von Papen, uh, convinced Hindenburg that forming a conservative administration with Hitler as Chancellor, but they hope only figurehead, and thus getting his parliamentary troops behind them, that this is the way out. And Hindenburg is eventually and grudgingly persuaded of this. Hindenburg didn't like or respect Hitler. I mean, Hitler probably was no great fan of Hindenburg either, but more for sort of political reasons. Hindenburg looked at Hitler and he saw, as he always said, that bohemian private. He saw a man who had never risen above private first class in four years of service in the army, a man from South Germany, Hindenburg's a Prussian, he doesn't like that, you know, a man of lower class origins, Hindenburg's an aristocrat, 
None of this spells anything that Hindenburg respects. There was a real class divide, a, a classified, a regional divide, all kinds of divides. Even days before Hindenburg finally names Hitler as his chancellor, he's uh, speaking of him contemptuously as fit at best to be my postal minister. The following year, 1934, von Hindenburg dies. What happens then? Uh, so when Hindenburg dies, this raises a problem for Hitler and the Nazis because there are a lot of mainstream sort of conservative establishment types who would really like to see the monarchy back. Hitler really doesn't want that to happen because he does not want someone with the legitimacy of the royal family you know, and the restored monarchy over him and thus very much infringing on his power. So Hitler has to sort of stew about this, what's going to happen. Then finally, when Hindenburg dies on the 2nd of August, Hitler again moves very quickly to head off any prospect of bringing back the monarchy. He, he says, you know, sort of with fake piety, Hindenburg so defined the position of Reich president that no one could ever follow him. So we'll just abolish that position and uh, the powers of the presidency will come to me and we'll sort of reshape things. Instead of having a Reich president and a Reich chancellor, what we will have is one person, i.e. me, i.e. Hitler, uh, occupying the position of Führer and Reich chancellor. So he declares that he holds a plebiscite to invite the Germans to vote on whether they favor that or not. Uh, and the vote is overwhelmingly in favor. Um, how free an election that was is, of course, very much open to question. Although most historians think a majority would have voted for that anyway. And you say that after this vote, I'm quoting, his hold on dictatorial rule was now complete. Yeah, now there's no one in his way anymore. For his first year and a half in power, in theory, at any time, Hindenburg could have fired him. Now Hindenburg's gone and the position's gone. And so as a 34, there's really no threat to him on the horizon. Uh, he's really finally and definitively achieved a, a very firm grip on power. You write about the paradoxes of uh, Hitler, uh, for example, that he uh, lied all the time, uh, yet he also said clearly what he intended to do. Uh, the other paradox you uh, highlight is that at the heart of his puzzling political success, uh, he was a loner, very remote, yet, quote, had a remarkable intuition uh, into others. Also, he articulated an enormous contempt for the German people, the very people that he was uh, leading. Yeah. What was that about? Yeah, in a way, this is related to his kind of cynical and nasty, but not wholly wrong political cunning. Um, he did have, he had really nothing but contempt for the great masses of the German people, as in fact, he had nothing but contempt for the great masses of any people. But I think this is most surprising for most of us when we think of I mean, because everybody knows that, you know, Hitler believed the Germans were some kind of master race, and that was an element of, of what he was trying to do. And yet, you know, if you read Mein Kampf, if you read, you know, all the things he says about, well, the masses are foolish and stupid and weak, and they can't hold very much in their heads, only one very simple idea, endlessly repeated, endlessly repeat a simple idea, then they'll kind of get it. Um, and of course, you have to lie to them massively, and they won't be clever enough to figure that out. I mean, all of this adds up to a certain kind of contempt uh, for his own people. It also sort of gets manifested uh, later on during the Second World War, uh, when on a number of occasions during World War II, particularly after the war started to turn against him, he said things like, well, 
uh, you know, if we lose or if the Germans lose, then the Russian people will have shown themselves to be the stronger. So that's the way things work. That's right then. Then the German people should just utterly perish and the world will belong to the Russians. He was in a way willing to accept this unwelcome outcome of his kind of really brutal social Darwinism. So that's one of the paradoxes. Uh, yeah, his sort of personal relations is definitely another because by all accounts, this is a man who was very closed off from normal human interaction. Some biographers say, I suspect probably rightly, that of all human beings, he probably loved only his mother and she had died when he was a young man. Uh, so he really wasn't close to anybody. And yet, and this is the remarkable thing, and yet, Hitler could read people as few people can. And he was very, very good at that. And that was one of the real secrets to his political rise. He could read always with remarkable accuracy what a person was thinking, feeling, hoping to hear. And insofar as Hitler wanted to persuade that person of anything, then he could say exactly what they wanted to hear. And we, we can see him do this, even with sort of tough, skeptical persons like the parade of foreign statesmen who visited him in the 1930s after he was chancellor and almost invariably came away impressed and impressed with things that don't sound to us like Hitler, you know, and saying, well, he's a man of peace, he means well, and this sort of thing. Hitler could convince people of that because he could read them. Uh, and so that's, it seems like an odd gift for a man to have who is so closed off from other sort of normal human interaction. One thing that fascinates me about Nazi Germany is on the one hand, there are historians who tell us Hitler is what happens when you have too much democracy. And there are, are historians who tell us Hitler is what happens when you don't have enough democracy. Historical comparisons can be problematic, but do you see any similarities or parallels uh, between uh, what happened in the course of the death of democracy and the rise of uh, Nazi Germany with uh, contemporary politics in the United States? You know, I think the parallels really are not so much between Adolf Hitler, the person, and, you know, any person we might think of in a leadership position right now in the United States, like maybe our president. Those two are very different human beings on a lot of different levels. But I think there are important parallels at a sort of deeper uh, structural level. And I think they are parallels which are something to worry about. So on the one hand... Um, as I've argued, I think the Nazis were basically an a, a anti-globalist protest movement. That's a lot of what's driving Donald Trump and support for the Republicans these days. This leads to policy outcomes, which it seems to me are outcomes diametrically flying in the face of things we have learned out of hard and bitter experience over the last 80 years or so. Like basically, international trade and international relations of all kinds are good, uh, the whole sort of infrastructure that we created after World War II in the Western alliance, both military and its um, diplomatic uh, uh, corollaries, all of this is good, and all of this is somewhat threatened by Trump's sort of really militant America first, uh, the heck with the world sort of attitude. I worry what's going to happen to NATO. I worry what's going to happen to all of our trade relations. I think the lessons of the 30s are that, you know, these things sort of go together. Good economic relations and good trade relations tend to lead to good political relations. So that's one thing. The role of kind of establishment conservative elites is another one. You know, Hitler would never have gotten in the door as chancellor if Hindenburg and the people around him hadn't made that possible. And this is because 
Germany's conservative establishment thought that this kind of crude and kind of worrying political movement might be good for getting through their own agenda. Now, I think this is a pretty close parallel to how a lot of establishment Republicans uh, have looked and look at Trump and his following, that maybe not quite our cup of tea, but they're getting us to tax cuts. And the problem with that is that it will exert a price, and you may be making a bargain with a force of which you will lose control and will lead you places you don't want to go. I think if they wanted to be honest, I think a lot of mainstream Republicans would say that right now, especially with respect to the trade deals they have always stood for. The, you know, Free trade has always been a Republican thing. Strong defense has always been a Republican thing, and it seems there's no adversary of the United States that Trump doesn't want to appease, so long as it's a brutal dictator like Putin or Kim Jong-un. I think that's one. And then third sort of deliberate cultivation of dishonesty and contempt for facts and, and somehow viewing factuality and rationality and truth as some sort of elite nonsense that you can dispense with. That was very much a hallmark of the Nazis, and it's uh, sadly very much a hallmark of our time. That is for sure not going to lead anywhere good. None of these things are going to lead anywhere good. You know, I'm not saying that tomorrow morning we're going to all find ourselves being hauled off to concentration camps, but many bad things can happen short of that. And I think some of them are happening. And I am worried about the sort of general texture of our democracy and of the policy choices that we're making. And you also have as part of that component of that is the scapegoating of uh, immigrants being uh, targeting minority groups and uh, foreigners, the growth of xenophobia and the attack on the press as the enemy of the American people. All of that is horrific. You know, the anti-immigrant rhetoric we're seeing nowadays is very redolent of what was going on in Germany in the 1920s. The Nazi Party's official program, their famous 25 points of, of 1920, was very explicit about its anti-immigrant orientation as well as its anti-Semitic orientation. A lot of the political rhetoric we're hearing now in the United States just totally recycles that. And, of course, the as you were <laughs> saying, the, the mud being thrown at your profession, the contempt for a free press, uh, certainly a free press that is critical of the powers that be. I mean, frankly, calling uh, journalists the enemies of the people is so horrifically Hitlerian or Stalinist that, you know, I don't know where to start on that, but it, that is certainly not rhetoric that's going to lead anywhere good. And the slogan of America First actually has neo-Nazi origins right here in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, of course, that was a, a basically an isolationist movement of the period leading right up to America's involvement in the Second World War. It didn't go very well. It wasn't a very good idea back then, and it's not a very good idea now, if you ask me. Thanks very much, Benjamin Hett. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure, David. You were just listening to an interview with Benjamin Hett on how Hitler happened. I talked with him in New York. Benjamin Hett is a professor of history at Hunter College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. He's the author of Death of Democracy. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and part of the nonprofit Rise Up. We are supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature progressive voices from Chris Hedges to Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs, MP3s, or written transcripts of today's program, 
Benjamin Head on how Hitler happened and his book, Death of Democracy, call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order on our website, alternativeradio.org. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. FM in Calgary. We're just here to have fun.